Lord Jesus Christ, you have told us that with God all things are possible. Grant us your Holy Spirit that we might do the seemingly impossible and live by your economy of grace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Starting today, we are officially in our stewardship campaign to support our 2022 budget. And the sermons for the rest of the month are going to engage with the scripture by asking basic questions such as what, how, why, and where we give. The underlying message and theme of this campaign is we are the body of Christ. This is a truth we all know from Scripture, that the church is Christ's body. And for a body to work well, all members need to be present and contributing. Can you imagine if you woke up and your left leg just decided to stay in bed this morning? Or what if your right eye decided that while it rather liked being a part of the body, it would not be contributing its gift of sight any longer? Well, this is how it is with the church. For us to be a vibrant parish, we need the entire body present, active, and contributing to the well-being and health of the entire body. Now, giving money is just one way of contributing, but it is one way that cannot be ignored. And the reason why money cannot be ignored is the immense power that money has in our lives. There's a reason why this is not a fundraising campaign, even if that's exactly what we are attempting to do, to raise funds for the church's budget. But this is not about fundraising because the goal will not be achieved when we reach a balanced budget. Instead, this is a stewardship campaign because our goal is to become faithful, generous, and good stewards of the gifts that God has given us. And the difference between this being about you giving your funds versus you being a steward of God's gift goes by a very specific and very special word, salvation. To be very clear, I am not up here singing for my supper. These sermons are not going to just be so that I can be the rector of a more prestigious church that has a growing budget. Certainly, I'm not talking about money for four Sundays in a row because people are yearning for someone else to tell them how to spend it. But I am preaching this sermon series for one, because that's what the scripture readings point us towards. But secondly, whether we want to admit it or not, we are all enslaved to money. And the message of the gospel is that of liberation. So preaching that never addresses money is preaching that ignores the fullness of God's salvation for us in Jesus Christ. Now, perhaps you think I've overstated the case. I would argue, though, that the primary landscape in which we live, move, and have our being is economic. Nearly everything we do happens on the stage of economics, and in our case, capitalism. And think about just how much economic language has infiltrated the way we talk about other things. We speak about investing our time and spending our weekends. 
One of the most brilliant theologians of our time is an Episcopal professor at Yale, Catherine Tanner. And she has written extensively on this idea of our captivity to markets and finances that permeates all aspects of our lives, self-identity, relationships, vocation, even religion, happen on the field of economics. The heresy that's running rampant in many churches today called the prosperity gospel is rooted not in the grace of the gospel, but rather the norms of capitalism. Consider the fact that we have to have classes in order to teach children about all kinds of things. We have communion classes. In confirmation, we cover a whole variety of topics. We give families strategies for developing prayer routines at home. But when do we teach children about money? We don't have to teach it to them because it's the water we swim in. They pick up very early what is at the center of our lives and priorities. The Episcopal priest and author Robert Capon writes about an experiment for you to try. The next time you're at a family gathering that includes toddlers, children, and adults, pull out a $20 bill and set it on fire. Now, the toddlers will be entertained by this because it's the sight of something burning. But as soon as it goes out, they will just go right back to their business. The school-aged children, though, will look befuddled. Why in the world are you doing this? The adults will question you where you got a fake bill from and what kind of stunt this is. Now, the truth, of course, all money is fake. But when we come to realize that you've really burned a real bill, you'll start hearing lectures about how that money could have been used to do something good. Maybe someone will remind you that defacing money is actually a federal crime. But deep down, we all know that the confusion and the outrage at this act comes from watching someone destroy our false god. People are not scared about losing $20, but they're scared about an act that threatens to upend our world. And that's not a lesson that we have to teach children, because we resemble what we revere. We become what we worship. Nearly every single problem in our personal and political lives right now is the result of lust for money. What's Congress fighting about these days? The debt limit and the price tag of an infrastructure bill. What is Facebook in hot water over for putting profits ahead of ethics? What do couples often fight about? Money. Who makes it, who controls it, and who spends it? The Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, has written that money is often given the same power as death, in the same way that we will do nearly anything to deny death, we will do nearly anything for money. He notes that our worldview is defined by what we measure, and in our society, we measure nearly everything with money, and therefore we are defined in those terms. Think about what money has the power to do. If I just say the word reparations, your blood pressure goes up. 
Think about how many ball games and recitals have been missed by parents putting in long hours in the service of a paycheck, and how much damage that has done to generations of children. Now that one I realize it might cut deep for some of us. And what is the defense that most parents would give? What choice did I have? And that's exactly my point. If we don't have a choice, then that makes us a slave. Now we like to think that we have power over money, but we do not. And there's a very simple test that you can use to see whether or not you have power over your money, or if your money has power over you. But it's not a test that I came up with. Rather, it's a test that Jesus gives us in chapter 10 of Mark. A man ran up to Jesus, knelt before him, and asked about inheriting life in the kingdom of God. Now, I know the translation we heard this morning said eternal life, but that's not the best translation. He's not asking about getting into a banquet after he's dead. He's asking about being a part of the kingdom that Jesus has been talking about and saying is coming on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus gives him a very simple and direct answer. Go, sell, give, come, and follow. Now this passage is just one of many that lets us know that no one really takes the Bible literally, because this is one of the most literal things that Jesus ever said. And the man wasn't able to do it. The text says he was shocked and went away grieving. The particular word used here for grieving is fairly unique in Scripture. More than grieving, it means something like going dark. It's used a few times to describe the feeling of when an empire that has forsaken God falls. And that's exactly what has happened here. Wealth had been his guiding light. And that idol was extinguished by Jesus, who asked him not just to burn a $20 bill, but to give away the entire bank account. And so he walked away from Jesus. His money had too much power over him. Now the disciples are perplexed at this. In their world, just as it is in ours, wealth was a, a sign of success. Being wealthy meant that God favored you, that God had blessed you, that you were wise, successful, and good. So how can it be that this man was not fit to be one of Jesus' disciples. Jesus says how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And to be clear, regardless of what is in your wallet or at the end of your bank statement, every single one of us is rich, especially when we consider that the person giving us this lesson was an itinerant and homeless preacher in the backwaters of Galilee. Now, maybe we cannot charter a flight into orbit, but Jesus is absolutely speaking to each of us. And not to be misunderstood on this point, Jesus doubles down how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, that particular phrase has a long history of people trying to explain it away. But Jesus meant exactly what he said. In other words, salvation is impossible for us, regardless of how much money we have, how many favors we can call in, how well connected we are. 
Money cannot save us, but it may well damn us. And this is why Jesus links money to salvation, because we need to be saved from money. Now, I've already mentioned that money can distort relationships. It leads us to commodify things that should never have a price tag put on them. It leads us to treat people like objects and objects like people. But the most pernicious thing about money is that it deludes us into thinking that we can become self-sufficient or that wealth can ever make us enough. Yes, money can surround us with certain conveniences and luxuries, but stage four cancer does not care what your net worth is. In a generation or two, no one will much remember what your bank account balance was. Wall Street is not concerned with making your life any better. It is concerned with you feeding its insatiable appetite for more. What's so dangerous about money is that there's no such thing as enough of it. To a point, yes, money can make us happier and more relaxed. And this has been studied repeatedly that once your income is over $70,000, the more money you have, the less happy you will be. Because once we have enough to cover the basics, then we start to worry about money for money's sake. Yes, when you are in poverty, having enough money not to worry about financial ruin is important to your physical and mental well-being. But once we have more than our daily bread, so to put it, then we start worshiping at the altar of wealth and we become consumed by it. The liberation from this false god comes in giving away money. And to be completely honest with you all, this is hard, really hard. And I stand before you as a sinner and hypocrite who as, is as enslaved to money as much as any of you are. Have I given away all of my money? Not even close. Have I opted out of capitalism? No. Do I get my money's worth out of my Amazon Prime membership? You betcha. <laughs> but I can also tell you that our family does give away some of our money. Each year at about this time, we sit down with our budget and figure out what we expect our income to be in the next year. Before we decide what kind of vacation we will take before we decide whether or not we will be getting a new phone, before we decide what kind of car payments we'll have, we take 10% of that income and we pledge half of it to St. Luke's and the other 5% goes to other charitable organizations that we support. Now to be clear, 10% is a very far cry from 100%, but it is a start. And trust me, most of us can do quite well on 90%. 10% is a good biblical number, but there's nothing magic about it. Some can give more than 10% and quite frankly should. But if you are tempted to give less than 10%, there's a very good chance that it is the false god of wealth who is convincing you to do so. 10% takes planning. It takes intentionality. It takes sacrifice. 
And in return for that kind of giving, I cannot promise you that your relationship with money will be any easier. I cannot promise you that you won't still stress over money. I cannot promise you that you will receive all good things in return. But I can promise you that you'll start to see the salvation that Jesus is offering to us, where we live serving not the economy, but rather the kingdom of God. And the reason why Jesus tells us not just to burn our money or to completely opt out of the economy is that he tells us to do something with it, to give it away. You see, salvation is never personal. It's always communal. Participating in the kingdom is never something that we can do alone, but always with others as the body of Christ. The goal is not to get rid of money. Rather, it is to give it away. We give money away to participate in a different economy, the economy of God's abundant grace, an economy where the impossible saving of sinners like us not only becomes possible, but a reality.